Welcome to The Confidence Circle, a podcast dedicated to bringing people closer that face daily life challenges through mental health issues and traumatic events. I'm your host, Alicia O'Hanna. Today, we have our first ever guest, Rachel. When I asked for people to interview, she jumped at the chance and I loved her enthusiasm from the get-go. Please introduce yourself. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, Yeah, my name is Rachel Kirkpatrick and I am an artist as well. I work at the Beaumont Studios full-time in the management team. I also uh, am a tattoo artist as well. I do a lot of different kinds of art. Um, I typically have the same subjects, so I'm really obsessed with mandalas, sacred geometry, and galaxy cosmo kind of energy. And so my mediums often change. So often I've done murals, I've done large sand pieces at White Rock Beach, uh, I've done uh, snow art and painted furniture and all that kind of stuff. So I really, yeah, I tend to change my mediums a lot though. My favorite right now are pottery and tattoo. Oh, nice. And about, uh, yeah, 10 years ago, I had a full on, or maybe seven or eight, I had a full on psychotic break and it was a immediately diagnosed with bipolar 2 with mania and an acute psychotic episode um i since have uh technically recovered i guess after two years of not having another episode you are considered recovered um and since then i've also had a son and my life has been just as tumultuous as it was back then so there's definitely lots to delve into today i'm sure oh that's amazing so when you told me your diagnosis you said bipolar 2 Can you tell me a little bit about the difference between bipolar and bipolar 2? Because I've personally never heard of bipolar 2. Yeah, well, I guess the main difference is that with bipolar 1 and 2, I guess uh, they have... um longer depression cycles I think if I understand it correctly and uh, in bipolar 2 you have the capacity for mania and so mania is like well well well, they all have mania they're basically just different levels okay sure Um, I'm not super super like knowledgeable on the the different diagnoses I just know that that is my diagnosis and that I had the mania I had a full-on psychotic episode it was like very definitely life-threatening and I like jumped in the Fraser River and thought I was gonna go to the other side of the world and uh, through a portal and like full-on like definitely out of my mind so it's definitely like a fun story and some scary for sure but it's also yeah something that I mean for me was a major spiritual awakening of sorts if just to one to show me where I was at at the time and how like disturbed I was even though I had no idea and then also just an awakening of just knowing who I am I think too in a, in a way okay how old were you when you had your first episode or not necessarily even the psychosis but depression or anxiety did you grow up with that or how did that come around I definitely um so I was 21 when it happened I was in my third year of university um, and I had uh, come out as a lesbian like three years before that And then uh, prior to that as well, I was going to Bible college and like leaving religion in that process. So, and then it like ended up getting kicked out of my house. So like a lot led up to that, but I would say that in general, uh, I have anxiety and I think that's like the main thing that I really tend to have. Occasionally I'll get really super duper burnt out and then I'll experience a depression. Uh, But for the most part, my biggest battle is anxiety. And that's, I think 
in one way it's totally my superpower and in another way it definitely has its downsides uh, for sure I totally um, agree yeah I think <laughs> anxiety's prepared me for so much in life because I've overthought every single scenario one million times I'm like I'm totally prepared for the end of the world I'm fine yeah. so I, I understand and then the other part is just disastrous where you really can't find your way out so totally yeah and I a few uh, months ago I was getting interviewed a friend of mine who I teach art with she was interviewing me for a class uh, about uh, how to interview people ironically and she was specifically interviewing an artist and she asked me she said you get so much done like how do you get this so how are you so productive and I just laughed and said I'm diagnosed with bipolar 2 with mania like that is like you're the ultimate productive person oh, wow <laughs> even when I first got my very like first diagnosis as soon as this episode happened it was kind of like a three-day process and then I was in the psych board for two weeks following and when I had my first meeting with my first psychiatrist he just sort of said you know he listed all these famous people like these authors like Georgia someone okay for something like that and a bunch of other people who all have this diagnosis as well and that's a lot of artists do as well so it's just one of those things we're like okay it's not like totally the end of the world but it does need to be managed for that's sure. amazing okay so <laughs> you were in your third year of university you came out what was that like what was like <laughs> what was coming out like for you Oh, man. I mean, so, I mean, part of all of this and part of everything is that I, I grew up incredibly religious. So I went to a Christian university, or sorry, a Christian school, grade school, and then Christian church. And then when I graduated high school, I went on like a one-year gap year missions program in the south side of Chicago in the inner city. And then I came back, went to Bible college for a semester, and oh in gosh. that semester was like... I'm coming out. I fell in love with my first girlfriend at the time and Aww. then was like also getting fed all this like rhetoric that I yeah. wasn't super keen on. But at the same time, I was reading God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens <laughs> and like all and, and yeah, falling in love with my first girlfriend. So just trying to like unravel all those knots all at once. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of like, yeah, it definitely coming out was not the most fun. And for me, it wasn't something I expected to happen. Like the, my first girlfriend just happened naturally and in I definitely still use that lesbian label yeah. um, but for the most part I consider myself fluid and open I mean I have a son now so you do the math yeah <laughs> um but I mean yeah it's just it's just one of those things yeah it was not easy by any means and my family was not super jazzed they're more comfortable now um but it's taken time for sure for sure I understand um what made you think that you're your psychotic break, well, what made you think that you had more than depression or anxiety growing up? Like, I know you started at depression, but was there ever a part of you that's like, no, there's, there has to be more. I don't feel like the diagnosis really fits me with the mania and um, the psychotic break. Did you ever think that there was something missing with the doctors, what they were saying to you or how did that yeah, yes and no. So I when I first got the diagnosis, I was like, this is not me. It doesn't fit, like blah, blah, blah. And the more I started to understand it, and after two years, I started to get more okay with it and start to almost like lean into it, if that makes sense. And even now, I think I almost I use it, the label more now than I did before. Um, but uh, yeah, when I, when I was younger and had anxiety and I never really necessarily thought any of that was not normal until this happened and it was like that huge wake up call of yeah. like, okay, yeah, you're not okay. You can pretend that you're okay, but you're not okay. And at the time I was, 
I had been kicked out of my mom's house. I was living uh, in a like really shitty one bedroom apartment in downtown Abbotsford on like a highway practically with like wow. a hill. So there's like just like traffic hill outside my window and it was like pretty scummy. And I just felt so isolated and by myself. I had a girlfriend at the time and that was going well at the time, but also it just, I just didn't, it just, everything got caught up to me. And the, I, I did, take I would always like whenever I I find my anxiety manifests physically and it will be like my jaw will hurt or my neck will be kinked or my shoulders are tight and when that was happening I remember being in a lot of pain and not being able to verbalize it or say anything of the sort and I was having like sinus issues so I took a bunch of Sudafed which is like a over-the-counter like medicine for sinus issues and I had ended up okay I ended up getting my wisdom teeth out in a very like stressed out, like something hurts, something hurts, I don't know what it is, it's probably that. So then they took my teeth out and I had, I took T3s and then I didn't realize that they have caffeine in them. So one night I took them before bed, I was like in the middle of midterms and just like my regular stressful life. And I ended up being up the whole night and like cleaning and kind of being manic that way on the pills. Oh my gosh. And then the next morning I needed to go get my hair cut and I got in my like weird state of sleeplessness and hopped up on caffeine. I took a bunch of Sudafed. And so Sudafed itself is, uh, has a, um, uh, an upper in it. And so it is sometimes people use it to cut crack as well. Oh so I didn't know any of this. It's like an amphetamine. And so that for sure contributed. So whether or not like I still like the psychosis part, I don't know if I'm generally the type of person that can cross that threshold. But a part of me thinks it was a little bit drug induced. And then a part of me thinks it was all like also trauma induced. So whether or not I can do that on trauma alone, I don't know. Only time will tell. But the yeah. fact that it, two years has passed, it's been like seven or eight years now, but like once you reach that two years of recovery, you're considered recovered. So like that it likely won't have another episode. But okay. if you do have an episode within the first year of having your first one, you're more likely to have a lifetime diagnosis. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> it was funny because I was in school studying this as well. And then, I mean, the, the episode itself is pretty fun too. Like it's not fun, it's scary. And it, that was the turning point. But I ended up going to my haircut in that morning after sleeplessness, on, taking a bunch of the sinus med, not really having, knowing what to do. And just thinking something's wrong with me, but not really knowing who to call to tell them or like to even just get anything off my chest. Like I just didn't have that. And uh, I ended up just talking a lot of craziness of things that didn't make sense like the polarization of the planet and what's going to happen and the earth is going to explode and it basically was like any thought i had in my mind that i could think of at all was true so it was like this thought would come into my mind like oh google's after you visa wants you like there's often in these manic episodes you feel like you're like a god figure or you're also yeah. like in trouble yeah. and so i felt definitely felt both of those things it was like euphoric but at the same time i felt everyone was after me i thought the cops were coming because they knew this was happening i thought that i was god or jesus sorry and i was trying to make water into wine in the bathroom when i was in there yeah. i was trying to teleport by turning off all the lights and leaving like trying to leave the room and I just was like wreaking havoc. And when I left, I was so embarrassed. So I was in the washroom, in the hair salon. And I was so embarrassed because I knew like, it's like 
a lot of people don't remember their psychosis, but I do remember it. And I remember feeling like there was like, it was almost like I was possessed and someone else was taking over my energy yeah. and that, and I was just responding to the thoughts in my head and my body was just moving, doing things. So I booked it out of the hair salon and was like super duper embarrassed and just like did not look past. I left my wallet in there. I left my money. I just like left. Oh my god! And I was so nervous. I booked it across the street and like cars going by and was just did pretty much a no look. And then I was in like an industrial area in Port Kells, that's where my haircut was. And I went into some warehouse with trucks in it and was talking about recycling and picked up their phone when it rang and was like inviting people to come to my house that Friday night. And then I ended up running around. I almost, I almost, this is like where it gets pretty scary and serious. I, I had this vision in my head that there was a portal um, in, if I were to jump off the Golden Ears Bridge there would be a portal that I was supposed to go down to get to somewhere else. Like I was trying to get to Mecca. I don't know where that really came from because I know that in the like biblical world it, it matters and in a lot of other religions it matters, but I still don't really have a full understanding. But for some reason I was super obsessed with going through a portal to get to the other side of the world to Mecca. And it was just like full on crazy. So I ended up not doing that because I remember thinking that that's not a good idea. Yeah. But at the same time, it goes to show how people when they are in their manic episodes often do jump off cliffs and stuff like that because yeah, they yeah. they feel like they're compelled to like it's a compulsion and uh, that was true for me so I ended up jump, jumping into the Fraser River uh, at some point you actually jumped into the Fraser I actually, River actually I was trying to cross it so I all have this like weird childhood obsession with um, Golden Ears Mountain my mom framed our house so she built we built our house or she built it designed it specifically so that the kitchen window would frame the Golden Ears wow. Mountain we don't have that house anymore but it was still very cool and that was just something that I always wanted to climb it and that was like just still on my bucket list I still have yet to do it but I I thought for some reason that the world was ending and I needed to cross the Fraser River to get to this Golden Ears Mountain that I could see with where I was it was kind of like near where the Golden Ears Bridge is and I uh, went across. I thought all these people were chasing me. I thought the cops were after me. I thought like demons were chasing me. It was so weird. And then I thought there was a portal in the middle also that I needed to get to. I was like tr half trying to cross, half trying to teleport to the top of Golden Ears, half trying to teleport to Mecca. And I went in the water. As soon as I got in, I realized how cold it was. And this is like, I just kept trying to swim across. But if you've ever tried to swim across a raging river, it, you'll you get swept in. And so what happened was I did. I got swept in. And uh, I remember being under the water. I don't know if I was hypothermic or if I was just drowning, um, but I had this vision or this understanding and this voice in my ear. So there was some auditory hallucinations as well with all of this. And the voice was saying, it's okay. Everything's gonna be okay. You're gonna be fine, just relax. And ironically, or whatever, I was reading a book at the time about healing trauma. And it w one of the things it talked about was the impalas are a type of animal in like Africa and warmer countries that when a tiger or a lion or someone comes to get them, the predator, then as prey, they just make their bodies completely limp as if they're dead. And they pretend to be dead, but they, they, they're pretending, but their nervous system actually shuts off. So the tiger and the lion or whatever is chasing them um, basically thinks they're dead, 
And yes, I won. I got them and yeah. then puts them down and then they up and run away. So I just remember being in the river, lying there in the cold and just almost like kind of like Jesus or whatever, like arms out, relaxed and just hearing this voice saying, it's okay. Everything's going to be okay. And then I don't remember much of what happened after that. And so after that, I, I remember i do have memories not like of this world if you will so to me i see this as a near-death experience i think that i was probably drowning and hypothermic and my brain was actually shutting down and um i was in the river and i i have memories of like seeing some friends that i know that have passed and my one friend that died while I was in high school, like he had a heart attack or his heart just stopped beating when he was like 16. And I just remember him like giving me my heart back. I remember meeting wow. Jesus, which is like, you know, my original concept of savior or whatever. And I got to, um, yeah, like it was, I saw my grandma or at least the energy of my grandma. It was just so, it was just like very pink energy and like the colors and the things that I saw were like so not of this world. And I just remember, like it felt like I was gone for thousands of years, like thousands and thousands. And I came to, if you will, about two kilometers down the river from when I got in. I didn't know this at the time. I like ended up having to go back and figure out where I went in, where I got out, that sort of thing. I was in the middle of the river. It was a very much more calm area than when I got in. I was looking around and I thought I was in heaven. I was like, sweet, I finally made it. I got there, I got to the promised land. <laughs> And I'm looking around and I'm like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And I was like, oh, there he is. And sure enough, there was a guy on shore standing there being like, do you need help? <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, I do. So at this point, I'm still in a river and it's going like it's slower than before. And um, like the clouds were opening. It was more calm than when I got into it. It was like very weirdly serene. And it, I remember getting there was um, a bunch of logs. So, you know, Vancouver, we're very like industrial yeah. forestry world town and we have um there were yeah there were all these logs like cut up and just hanging out and there was one by itself and I just knew I had to get onto it and I also just remember that like from my training I used to when I was in a, a bible college uh, for that one semester while I was with that girlfriend or yeah she we, I was a part of a program called Outdoor Leadership, where okay. I was training to be a mountain guide, essentially. And so I remember that, like, if you're near a tree or anything of the sort, you can get sucked under. And it was just, like, this big, like, physical exertion to get on top. And then I remember by the time I got top, on top of the log, which all really happened and required a lot of strength and mental capacity, apparently I still had, who knew, jumped on the log, stood there, and just, like, remember sort of, like, kind of feeling, like, looking at my hands and realizing, like, I was back in my body and oh, being, wow. like, very just like what the hell happened like just kind of not knowing like having like a little bit of a flashy memory of being in the water and then the clear memory started to come back once I was on top of the log and no joke a blue tugboat like teal blue bright so bright ended up coming to get me the guy who was on the shore radioed for help yeah because I was still offshore in this like experience I was still way like from shore and so this blue tugboat picked me up ironically I had just gotten my hair full head 
dyed bright purple for the first time and then I had this like neon also teal shirt on I just looked ridiculous like soaking wet oh my God. and standing there shivering I'm sure I was very hypothermic I looked at my hands they were purple and I um got onto the shore and the first question I asked the guy who I was hoping was Jesus which he was not was what year is it <laughs> because it was just like it had to have been years i was gone and it wasn't it was like an hour and a half later <laughs> he oh, told wow. me the year and it was the same year and uh, yeah and then i ended up uh being near where my mom had that house which i wasn't expecting also with the amount of traveling i had done That's in the river yeah so i he's the man who was standing there was like hey do you need help do you need me to call the police do you need me to call someone you know like what the hell like we never pick up live bodies out of this river oh my and God. he said they often see bodies in the river and they've never seen one alive and i was like okay yeah noted and then i just went looked around and said you know I know where I am. I can walk home from here. So I walked home for what? It was a one hour walk. This huge up like Barnston Hill or whatever. And then went to my mom's house, knocked on the door and was like, I need help. Something's not right. And then I was covered in cotton too. It was in June. It was just when the cotton trees were blowing and it was all in the river too. And I just had cotton all over me, which was super weird too. And then once I saw my mom, I couldn't stop talking about all the visions I had, all the people I saw. I had more memory then of those than I do now yeah. there's tons of things I was very obsessed about and talking about and then um my aunt ended up coming over my dad ended up coming over which is like my mom and my dad don't speak <laughs> and they were like both just like something's not right and then they ended up taking me to the hospital quite quickly after that and then getting me admitted <laughs> that's unbelievable that's an amazing story <laughs> yeah, it's pretty so wild. <laughs> while this all was happening did you feel like your conscious was trying to fight back or did you feel completely just not like yourself were you thinking like this isn't normal this isn't normal what is this voice talking to me like where is it coming from it is not my own thought you know when I was getting my hair cut I just remember having tons of thoughts and being really excitable very euphoric um, and then by the time I had left I felt like I had lost full control uh, once I got out of the river and was walking home, I remember walking up that hill and walking across the road, soaking wet, looking ridiculous, and just saying to myself in my head, like, that was not good. Yeah. Like, that was not good. That was a way, like, this is not good. This is really not good. And that's when I kind of knew, like, yeah, this is, needs to be obviously addressed in a very real way. Yeah. Before <laughs> this... um. Before the psychotic break, were you diagnosed with mania at all or no? no nothing. Okay, no. so this all came after. Yeah. Don't you find it weird that there's a diagnosis for this? Like you go in and describe and they're like, oh yeah, we've had thousands of people that have seen the same thing, feel like people are running after them and it's very real for people and they have a diagnosis for it and they still consider it imaginary. Yes, this is crazy. Because I personally think it's real. What my father was seeing and the way he was so invigorated by it and believed in it and was like no people are coming after us it was real to him that's what it felt like yeah and you can't tell someone who's in a state like that that it's not happening no you have to go along with it yeah you do that's what nonviolent crisis intervention is it's just sitting there listening like oh where are they now like pretend they're a five-year-old you know what would you do if they were a kid yeah so when i took my dad to the hospital actually the doctor thought he had dementia Oh, wow. And I was like, no, 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 this isn't dementia. He's having terrors at night. He's screaming and everything. And and that's what they diagnosed him with. And I just find that a lot of people are misdiagnosed. A lot of people, I think this diagnosis is a way to totally get people to just shut up in a way. And like what you had was 
didn't exist, didn't happen. Here's some medication. Go on with your life. Totally. So I just, that's how I feel about it. Um, what happened after? So your parents took you to the hospital. Yeah. Was um, it BGH? No, it was a uh, Surrey Memorial. Okay. Um, I remember, I mean, I was still pretty much like super, I don't know, wiggity, if you will, while yeah. I was in the, in the, um, I called it purgatory where it's like triage where you're deciding where to go. Yeah. Um, I went, I remember going to the gal who does like the write up of like what's happened, the intake nurse, I guess, the mm-hmm. Edmerge. And being like, okay, so this happened, and like trying to go through it. But it was funny because I was so calm. Like, I was still, like, I was very calm. Like, I was still, like, anxious, and like maybe my like legs were moving fast and stuff like that. But I was still, like, seen normal, if you will. Okay. And I just, but then once I started to talk about what I had just experienced, it, like, they were just like, what in the hell? Like, is what, like, this is, yeah, we obviously were taking her into psych or whatever. So as soon as they put me in the psych, um triage area that's when I was cut off from my family and no longer seeing them and I do I do feel like there were was a lot of times in that initial part where I did not was not taken seriously because all those things really did happen everything I was saying people like that didn't happen no one goes in the Fraser River and gets out because for example like the the Fraser River has two currents, so it's got one that is going down from the mountains that creates the river, and then it also has the ocean current where the ocean meets, so it's two, it has double currents, though. Yeah, but I do feel like people did not take me seriously in that initial time where I was hungry, I needed food, I was talking about my hallucinations, but I also knew that it was crazy. I think that's one thing that they told me right off the bat when I first met with that psychiatrist he said you're gonna be okay in all of this because you have insight and I had that right away because I knew what happened to me was crazy and I knew that these visions and experiences weren't normal but they still were real and that part I felt was somewhat discredited by the caretakers around me interesting even that they gave they basically pretty normal to give a lot of Ativan when you're in that state yeah. and they did they wanted to get me just to go to sleep and I was so uncomfortable with that yeah so that my was that was the same thing with my father they were more like you need to relax you need to relax we're gonna get they hyped him up on a few different pills I just remember sertraline being the really big one it was an antipsychotic and he was so tired all the time he was just foggy like he would sit there and just stare at the wall and it's like daddy daddy wake up and he'd just be like what's going on? Like, where am I? When he was psychotic, at least he had this energy and he was alive. And it was like, he was 16 years old again. My dad was 70 when he had the mental break, like wasn't psychotic his whole life. And then at 70, it happened. And a lot of people didn't believe that he went through it as well. So, and staff that work in the hospital that deal with this every day, aren't doubting it. So I think it's such an unhealthy culture that the people who are supposed to make us feel better and validate us don't believe what we're going through. And it's like, what the hell kind of a system is this that doesn't believe the citizens they're taking care of? How is that treatment? That's not how people get better. So it's wild. Yeah. And on the flip side of that too, I mean, they also see all the worst case of everything all the time. So when they see it, they're like, oh yeah, it's just another of the same, but not taking into account that it might not be that person's first time, you know, it might not be normal for them too, you know? So 
Yeah, it's definitely one of those scary things. I know I worked front lines uh, in the downtown east side for a couple of oh years, and it's one of those things where you go there and you think, oh, I'm going to help or whatever else, and you end up becoming quite jaded and understanding why those fields are so jaded yeah. and you know people a lot of people would say the same thing to us too like oh you don't treat us with dignity and respect and we're like I asked you to take your laundry out so someone else could have their laundry in it's not personal you know yeah. those kinds of things but yeah it's a hard it's a hard mental health is a hard world to be in because people literally are not in their right mind exactly exactly right you can ask someone to calm down do a million things to help themselves but if they don't feel that they have the problem they cannot get help because they don't think they have one. It's very, very hard. And I know a lot of people that are psychotic, schizophrenic, I have so many clients with kids that they cut contact off with. And it's so sad because the kids don't take medication and they do think they are God. And and the mom is like, honey, you need to back down. And they're like, no, you are the reason why this is happening. You are poison. You're bad for me. You're going to try to give me pills. I'm not listening to you anymore. And it's so, so hard it's so delicate but it's something everybody can relate to i have two best friends so one is muslim one is hindu and i'm jewish and we all laugh when we get together we're like this is some kind of joke but one's brother schizophrenic one's brother has an alcohol addiction and then my father was psychotic and we're sitting there and we're like wow we're all so different yet we all are dealing with family shattering issues that could literally tear a family apart and it's really amazing um, one thing I was going to ask you was, so the psychotic break ended kind of when you got into the hospital, how did they handle you with care while you were there, while you were getting your reality back? Um, what treatment did they offer you? Like, how did they, how did they go to that? Well, initially they put me on Seroquel as well as Epival. And Epival is a mood stabilizer that's meant to stabilize moods with people with bipolar disorder. Um, I ended up being on the Epival for two years uh, and then kind of weaning off with a I was part of a program called Early Psychosis Intervention. If you have an episode before the age of 25, you qualify to get in and they require you to be a part of it for two years. So they didn't let me go. They had mental health team on me, which was amazing. And the Seroquel I was on right away, and they that did not work. I was on it for maybe two nights and like I was having heart palpitations and oh, that wow. sort of thing. So there was some weird side effects that they decided to take me off of. Um, the main thing when they first got in the psych ward was they just gave me a bunch of pills to sleep and I needed that for two or three days. I slept, I think, right off the bat. And that's one of the things I've learned in this whole process is that the number one trigger for bipolar and often schizophrenia as well is lack of sleep. And that for me, when I'm anxious, that's the first thing to go, right? Yeah. You're just kind of overstimulated and your brain is in over overactiveness. And I'm like making up my own words here. But also bipolar and schizophrenia uh, are very similar in what's happening in your mind, uh, in, your, in your body. It's just, it's exactly that. It's an overactive nervous system. And so that's what happens, I guess. So now I know that that's the thing. It's like yeah, if your sleep it. goes, that's what you got to focus on. Yeah. Go to sleep. I still struggle with that. <laughs> it's, it's a human thing. We all do. Um, how did you find the mental ward? What was it like in there, the atmosphere? 
Oh man. Well, at first I was still kind of in my psychotic break and I was so jazzed to be there because I was now Jesus and I was ready to find my 12 disciples. So I was looking around for all my buddies. Oh no. (laughs) But to be honest, I found it to be almost exactly what the movies look like. Yeah. It was like, you don't know what you're going to expect. Sometime one night, one guy picked up a 2000 pound pool table and dropped it. And like it was, there was a huge dent in the ground, and there was a, a padded room where they would put people who were too unruly, and yeah, yeah. you know there was sometimes people crying and trying to kill themselves, and sometimes people just laughing and talking to themselves, and it's funny because I was there for two weeks, and with a few breaks, like they they have a process where they like let you leave for a day or four hours, or they have like you have these like passes you get, and it's just um, I. Yeah, it's just one of those things where one of the one of the guys came in one day who was like talking a lot and kind of over like just not, gibberish, not making any sense. And then like two or three days later, he was back to normal. So yeah. I started to see this pattern of people who would come in on their episodes and then come back to their normal selves. And it was very clear that I followed the same progression too. Once I yeah. realized that too, because I was yeah looking for my tribe. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing to watch people change. <laughs> Like my dad was in the hospital for three months and he went through two different psych wards. And the first time it was really bad. Like it felt like they were in jail and there were padded rooms and they put my dad on like a a metal bed with a urinal on the side of the wall and locked him in. And my, like, you know, you know, your loved ones, you'd never think of them as unruly or aggressive. He's a 70 year old man. What could he do? But in moments of psychosis, like you could do anything. The strength behind it is insane. It comes out of nowhere. So it's absolutely unbelievable. When he moved into the second part, a lot of the people were getting better and they were coming with him. It's called East One. So it's kind of like they can go for daily walks and stuff and get visits. Um, People started to get better on the medication and you could see their personalities coming back. And that's something that was really, there was a huge difference between the first and the second was the first one, they were just quiet to themselves, very aware of what was going uh, on around them. And then the second part, you started seeing this sweetness and this understanding between them and healing together and also sadness. Like I remember this little boy coming in to visit his mother and he's like, mom, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she just looked at him and she looked so depressed and she's like, I have fear. And I just thought, wow, what a beautiful, simple explanation for a child on depression and anxiety. I have fear. And it's something that impacts me to this day. That's all it is. It's fear. Totally. (laughs) It's crazy. That was a moment that really stuck out in my mind. And I found that atmosphere way easier to heal in than the hospital hospital ward. Hmm. So yeah, that was my experience with it. Interesting. Um, was it like a private like war like treatment center or so in BGH they have the intake inside the hospital where people are certified, like they're not allowed to leave. There's a code on the door. Once you get past a certain level where you're able to have visits and everything, they move you out to East One where it's um I, I don't know which street it's on in Vancouver, but it's facing the street. Like you can walk out. The patients are able to walk out and sit on the grass and then go back in after a certain time. It's more liberal. Um, 
Yeah. I was I, definitely an award with like, I was, I was certified. Or my whatever. dad was certified yeah. too. Yeah. So your family chose to certify you. No, the, the hospital was oh, like, wow. you are certified. You can't like, you do not have a choice. So when you came to, what was that like knowing that you were in there and you had no way of getting out? Yeah, I wasn't super jazzed. I mean, I didn't try to fight my way out. I mean, to be fair, I definitely tried to cheat the Ativan, and yeah. that was a big thing that mm-hmm. I found really stressful because I was not in a ward yet. And the it was a girl, she was similar to my age, the nurse, and she was like, you have to take this. And I was like, what for? Like, you know, I just yeah. remember when I was in the, psych ep- like the psychotic episode, I remember having a voice telling me that I was gonna go I thought I was gonna be in like Orange is the New Black I thought I was going to prison and so when I was in the psych ward I was like yeah this is what I imagined in my episode like I knew this was coming and so I remember feeling like I was maybe gonna be drugged and then having this voice being like don't take it don't take it like you don't need that you don't need that I was also had a voice telling me to shut up and not tell anyone about this episode and I like could not stop talking about all the things I saw so really I wasn't listening to my inner self (laughs) so what did the voice do when you were when you were explaining was there any part of you that's like this voice isn't real because I'm talking about it and nothing bad is happening I definitely just kept talking (laughs) that's amazing just like don't talk to everyone like because I knew my family like particularly would not appreciate my seeing Jesus and all of that but I still couldn't stop like I was just like I don't know in the in the Bible or whatever there's a a verse about like don't like Jesus always saying like don't tell anyone you saw me but then everyone knows because they all told anyway yeah and that's sort of what I felt like was happening it was like don't talk about it like okay I can't not (laughs) talk it was too crazy like I have to tell everyone that's amazing how did this affect your relationship (laughs) with your parents Oh, man, I think it was good. I think it made them see that I wasn't just this awesome person who always had it all together all the time and made them see that, you know, however many years of trauma I was dealing with was, like, real. And, I mean, they themselves separated when I was 14, so this would have been six years later. And, I mean, that alone was pretty tumultuous. I just, like, you were saying that uh, earlier off off camera or off voice that you uh people rejected you that you knew and i grew up very religious in the christian world and my family was also ostracized when they got divorced too like that was very real and so my i know my mom particularly lost a lot of friends i know i got some you know weird feedback but like it's just one of those things where yeah i don't know just takes away your sense of self in that age and because it was 14 it was a very transitional time anyway um but yeah it's just one of those things where it all caught up and my my family yeah I think it was good I think it was good that they got to see that I wasn't perfect but also for me I'm not one to be vulnerable so it was hella vulnerable I also started inviting like a million people to the psych ward and had so many visitors I was like check this out this place is awesome they got VHS (laughs) (laughs) I was having movie nights I like planned movie nights for all the people in the psych ward and like I was just loving it I was like this is like summer camp they feed you like that's what I needed you know Oh, I needed yeah. a respite. A I was break. so burnt out and I needed someone to make my damn meal for a couple of days like and sleep. Like yeah. That's really what I needed to, to get back to my center, I think. That's amazing. Um, so the treatment center was really good for you. Yeah, it was good. good. And that's by good. the end, I remember too, a nurse said to me, she said, why are you in here? You're not normal. I mean, you're normal. And yeah. I was like, I was not normal two weeks ago. So yeah. like, thank you. Goodbye. Yeah, <laughs> Let exactly. me out of here now, please. Exactly. <laughs> Do you find that this experience has influenced your art? 
Yeah, well, okay, so here's the thing to that is that I watched this video a few years back and it was all about the mental health diagnoses and we get labeled, um, you know, bipolar or whatever else. And there was this video where they all had a shirt with the label on it and then they pulled it back and underneath was something else. And I don't remember what the other depression and anxiety, those ones were, but the bipolar one, they pulled it off and underneath it said artist. Interesting. And so now I feel like I'm so lucky to be in the position I am in my life, in my world, where I'm in a world full of manic people. I manage a hundred resident artists in a two building arts hub wow. in Vancouver and Everyone has weird hours. Everyone's lives are project-based. Some people stay up all night and work on commissions till 4, 5, 6, 7 a.m. the next day. You know, it's just one of those things where now I feel like I found my tribe and my community. And I would say it has influenced my art, but I would also say that this diagnosis has showed me who I actually am and that I am an artist. And that video, like just that one little thing, was able to help me shift my focus from instead of being like, oh no, I'm bipolar, I need to be normal, to like, no, I am a creative, I'm an artist, and that is how I get my spiritual energy and how I express myself to the world. And so I think that since then, that even knowing that people can have project-based lifestyles, like that wasn't even on my radar. And so now that's something that I just, yeah, I'm just so lucky to be that's where really I am. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I think that's beautiful. It's a blessing. Honestly, like some people are like, oh, poor her. She's going through this. And I'm like, it's going to open her mind once she goes through and figures it out and copes with it. You become so much stronger as a person. Totally. So it's amazing. Yeah, and not only that, the day that I ended up properly getting out, I was actually quite nervous because I didn't want to go home and feed myself. I yeah. wanted someone to keep making my meals. Um, but I went and I had a, a, a henna gig. I used to do a lot of henna tattoos. And I it was a, the Blueberry Festival in Abbotsford or the Berry Festival. And the girl who was next to me in the booth, in her booth next to my booth, said uh hey you like i was explaining what happened she said oh you might be interested in floating i did another henna gig recently after that and i met this woman and she said you need to go talk to my friend because what i was looking for was some sort of shaman or someone to tell me what this meant on a spiritual level because i had been through this like very linear doctor normal way of going about things the medical system but i wanted to know what was actually happening to me on a spiritual level so i ended up going to visit this gal she was way out in agassiz and it was honestly one of the most enlightening experiences what she said to me was when this happens basically you're you are gaining like you're gaining like your third eye is opening and if you don't have like a reference for what that means and maybe you do i'm not really totally sure of your audience but like your your third eye opens and you're getting all the psychic knowledge and you don't know what to do with it and mm-hmm. you don't know how to deal with it so like people who have auditory and visual hallucinations it's like they see those as bad you need to not have those you need to get meds so those don't happen well i'm more of the perspective no you actually welcome those and you learn from them and you make friends with whatever is happening in those hallucinations because they all mean something and they they matter and so for me that was really helpful and then when i described the experience of psychosis I say, you know, I saw my hands moving, I saw my body moving, I tried to steal a car, I tried to like pick up this phone and talk to these people and do all these weird things. And it was like as if someone else had control over my body. And what she explained to me was that 
we are all hosts. We have our body, and I know Eckhart Tolle, he's one of my favorite spiritual guides or whatever, and he and it talks to you basically saying that like when you are open yourself up with the spiritual energy and you don't know how to have like boundaries over your own energy then you can open yourself up for something to come and take over your host and that basically you're in a way possessed and to me that made so much sense and I was like yeah that makes a lot of sense I was having all this stuff happen I was experiencing trauma and I didn't know how to cope and I had no one to fucking talk to and so it's just one of those things where now I go yeah okay cool so now I have people I can ask about my spiritual things like you know I had this vision I heard this thing and now yeah. it's not so scary and not something you need to like medicate away it's something absolutely. that you just it's you yeah absolutely <laughs> that's really beautiful I'm very happy that you found your community and people to talk to it's really important yeah it's nice to be around other people I always yeah. joke at the bone when I say we're all manic here we are yeah we are just People go through it at different phases in their life and we have no right to look at people and judge them for what they're going through. You literally have no idea what anybody is going through in life. So we have to be together and we have to talk about it this way. When people come through it, they don't think they're completely alone because it's really, really sad when people are alone. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I think especially pandemic times, like we're just, we're being shown that we really need that connection with others and that that it matters the most. <laughs> yeah. When you came out of the hospital, was there any support for you after from a social worker or hospital visits, anything like that? Uh, yeah. So right away I was put in that, uh, the early psychosis intervention program and I, I think it was weekly. It might've been a little bit less, but yeah, I got put with a team okay. and part of that team, you have a psychiatrist and then you have a caseworker and they are always checking in on you, making sure you're okay. Also, they help you with resources. They know if you need a job, they yeah. were trying to get me on welfare, um, which I didn't end up doing, but like I thought that was great. You know, our income assistance, trying to do whatever we needed to do to get me to a sustainable place of living, which is also one of the things I didn't really see as valuable. You know, yeah. like, oh, what do you yeah. mean I should be able to pay my rent? What do you mean I should, like, I am taking on a lot. Like, I didn't even know I was taking on a lot, you know, yeah. living on my own, going to school, having a girlfriend, <laughs> religion like getting kicked out of my house like I didn't even see those as big things I was like all right that's just moving on to the next you know who cares if I don't have any money left like like no those are actually those matter and to be like oh yeah I'm a person and I matter (laughs) it's funny how when you're going through like depression anxious thoughts your thoughts of necessities of life totally slip away and you completely forget about that until it's gone. And then you're like, oh my God, I don't have a place to live. I don't have this. I don't have this. What am I going to do? And it didn't matter at the time of all these problems that didn't really exist in your mind. So it's kind of crazy that way. Yeah, I think creatives, especially, are people that get wrapped up in their projects. Yes. You, you, I forget to eat all the time. Yeah. Like if I'm working on a tattoo or doing something, I like it's like eight hours will go by. I'll be like, oh, why is my blood sugar low? Like, yeah. oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I haven't eaten a thing. Passion <laughs> is a strong drive, but when it goes too far, it can go right into a deep end. It's crazy. Totally. Yeah. So what advice do you have for people that are going through bipolar 2, bipolar mania, or have had a psychotic episode, what's your advice to get them to, I don't want to say heal, but just to accept themselves and be strong within a community that might not be so accepting of them? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say it's something like definitely one, you have to own it and make amends with it, just like anything else. 
Um, I would also say you need to have somebody to talk to. And it's one of those things where it's so much easier said than done. Because yeah. it's like, well, who do you talk to if you have no one to talk to? But the reality is there are helplines and there are resources. Like that early psychosis intervention thing, I never heard about it. Yeah. But it was paid for by BC because BC is awesome, you know? Yeah. So it's one of those things. Yeah, it's just one of those things that, yeah, you just have to really... Also, also I, I would love to encourage people to feel empowered in knowing what meds you're taking, why you're taking them, how they work. I mean, I have the lucky advantage that while I was in university, I was studying mental health. I was studying what the meds do to your brain. And it, it's just, yeah, I mean, for depression anyway, every med they give you, there's like two completely opposite kinds of drugs. They do the very opposite things. You're either in an SSRI or an SSRO. And one of them stops your serotonin from working and one of them gives you more. Interesting. And it's like, if you don't know which one you're on, well, that can help you. So often they'll give people depression meds and if they suddenly get crazy crazy psycho um, uh, depressed and like maybe uh, suicidal ideation then they'll switch it over to the other one because we don't know we just know that it's the balance of serotonin and depending on the person it's whether they need more or less and so like those kinds of things are really valuable to know absolutely so yeah just it's just like i want people to feel empowered in what they're putting in their bodies and then knowing how it's working what it's doing for you i'm sure most if you as long as you have a good doctor that's that's also really key in the whole process but yeah just be feeling empowered to at least study it and understand what's happening that's a huge you point know? because when my dad was in the hospital they were throwing medications at him and we were like just throw it until it works we just want him to get better and maybe if we had an understanding and we told them all of what happened at home, they could have gotten a better understanding and better medicated my father. He ended up getting shock therapy. The medications didn't work. Um, but, you know, maybe it might have worked if we would have done a better job of bringing him in earlier and having them evaluate him throughout. So know your meds. All right. And I love that program that you brought up. That's amazing because I didn't know they had that. So that's wonderful. Yeah, and they have that you have to do it for two years. That's like just point blank. You're like you're in it, and and even with me, I would yeah. They said I ended up moving a lot, so I ended up going to a bunch of different psychiatrists in this whole process. And when we were talking about earlier, kind of like the healthcare workers not necessarily treating the best, mm -hmm. or yeah. Um, and I had. Uh, my last psychiatrist at my very last meeting, I was like, had mentioned that I was casually sleeping with this guy and the condom broke and um, <laughs> TMI alert. Um, but uh, what it, my backstory is that I'm, well, I'm now 29, but when I was 24, I found myself unexpectedly knocked up by a dude. We had been very casually sleeping together for five or six months. A vegan condom broke on us and oh, I wow. took the morning after pill and we still got pregnant. And in that time of not knowing, I had my last uh, meeting with the psychiatrist and she basically said to me because I joked that the condom had broke but I took the morning after pill so it was okay and she said well obviously if you're gonna get pregnant you're not gonna keep the baby and I was like okay oh well like first of all I didn't ask I was joking my bad nope to self not joking to you and then um, she basically said you know if you keep this baby you will become a bag lady with your track record and flat out was like you're gonna be living on the street in a shopping cart 
hard. And I was like, you know what? I'm not coming back. This is already the time. They had already agreed to end after the two years. This was my last meeting. We'd already agreed that I was allowed to wean off my meds and we had done so in a, you know, like six month period. And it was just one of those things where it also gave me, I didn't know at that time I was pregnant. I had no idea. I found out yeah. a couple days later. Um, but I yeah, really didn't think I actually was pregnant because like, what are That's the odds? That's um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I've kept my kid and I have, and I have not had a psychotic episode since. So yeah. fuck her. Yeah, <laughs> but... that's, that's, what a way to talk to a patient, especially young girl. Yeah. Yeah, wow. super fascinating. But the, yeah, all that to say that you can recover too. When people tell you there's no recovery or it is a lifelong diagnosis, I think if the diagnosis works for you, then that's great. Yeah. But at the same time, if you want to heal and you have that drive, you can. Just like in a hospital setting, if someone breaks their leg and they're really determined to get walking faster and get back to their basketball or whatever it is, they're going to heal faster because their body and their mind is motivated. So Absolutely. if you want healing, it's real and you can seek it. And you can also get perspective from other places too, like, you know, Reiki or shamans or yeah, whatever yeah. spiritual energies or even the more neutral like Eckhart Tolle's and Byron Katie's of this world. That's like, for me, that's something that I have always that has helped me the most are like the spiritual guides of like Absolutely. learning what your thoughts are and learning how to protect your mind. Cause we never talk about that. They don't talk about that in school. They don't talk about what, that you are a soul with thoughts. And like that concept alone is a lot of people don't even know they have thoughts. Yeah. And yeah. that is how you know you're a human. And that's what enlightenment is, is when you know that you have thoughts and you can distinguish the thoughts from happening versus, you know, that's, that's what it is. It's knowing is your thought rational or not. And it's like logically overriding it, kind of, which is a very uh, counterintuitive way to live, I think. It is, yeah. (laughs) Thoughts and energy. A lot of us don't realize when our energy just slips and we need to put it back into balance with something that we love. I find that when I went through depressions and like belts of anxiety, it was like I wasn't happy with what I was doing in life. So I need to gather that and go gather the energy to do something different and go, okay, I need to change what I'm doing in life to be happy. And I found that spiritually, it's much easier to put myself in place than with studying words or anything. It's about being happy inside. And then you can work on your mental and physical health and get back to being quote normal, whatever that is balanced, I guess is a better term balanced. Yeah. Totally. And uh, yeah, my, my favorite spiritual teacher or that has been the most practical for me is Byron Katie. And she's all about questioning your thoughts. Yeah. So yeah. it's like the thought comes in, but you don't have to believe it exactly. if you don't want to. Exactly. <laughs> and so that for me has been the most powerful tool. That and learning to meditate. I find that a lot of well, I have found to get a lot of anxiety when I'm meditating because learning how to relax is so stressful in a way because it it's like you it brings up your trauma and you're like I'm not used to being relaxed. I think that alone, it's like med- meditation is like the way to stay grounded, you know, but, and doing it in a safe way where you can relax too is like, yeah, that's it's just oh, so much to, so much to know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and learn. Was there anything else that you wanted to cover while we we're filming or say? 
Um, no, I just want to say thank you for providing this format to be able to have these discussions. And I mean, I'm Rachel Kirkpatrick and uh, at Rachel Kirkpatrick Art on Instagram, or you can, you know, find me all the places. And I mean, I'm happy for anyone to reach out if they want to talk. Absolutely. And um, yeah, thank you for providing this and for being such an easy to talk to person. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Anyone that wants to get interviewed and come on is totally welcome. It's a safe space. And if you ever want to come back and elaborate and maybe there's more you want to talk to talk about about healing and your art and doing what makes you happy and helping people heal, you're totally welcome back. Because <laughs> you're you're a pleasure to talk to. From a Facebook post going, Hey, she basically was like, Hey, this is my diagnosis. I wanna talk about it. And I was like, Cool. This girl sounds awesome and you are. So thank you so much for coming in and sharing and you're gonna help somebody today you might help save a life. So that's unbelievable. Thank you for sharing your story. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you guys again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and um, please comment if you have any, anything to say or any questions, we'll be happy to answer them for you. All right. Have a great day.